Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. And this is Tony LaGreca with The Courage to Hope. And tonight we have a very nice guest. His name is Mike Wilson. And Mike is a um, family-focused interventionist. And he also wrote a book. And Mike, what's the name of the book again? Loving Lions, a guide for families struggling with addiction. Okay, I love that name. And I like the picture of the lion on the front cover. Mm -hmm. That's a very cool book. Um, So... Before we get into the book and what you do with uh, in your business today at Bay State Recovery, uh, mm-hmm. let's talk about the beginning. So how did this all come about? How did you get into this? And I understand you grew up in Beverly, Mass, and uh, this was where you must have been a teenager. And it was, tell us yeah. The, <clears throat> okay, and I'll, I'll let you tell us the rest. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, uh, I grew up in Beverly, um, had, uh, my mother, my stepfather, my siblings, um, you know, went to Beverly high school. And I think it was, it was that transition into high school when I started, uh, messing around and experimenting with things, um, you know, pretty, pretty common approach, uh, started with marijuana, alcohol, um, you know, what at the time seemed like just normal teenage stuff. Um, but they did a different thing to me than they did to my friends. Um, you know, I think I had what I refer to now as an allergic reaction because that, uh, I responded differently to those substances. And so, uh, you know, throughout my high school uh, years, my relationship with substances kind of, uh, developed into more of a, a lifestyle rather than a hobby or a habit. Um, I got into selling the drugs and doing the drugs and and really being that person uh, so much so that I lost the connection with my family, um, my friends, and I just became a part of, um, you know, what in hindsight seems like the, uh, the, the underbelly of my community. You know, I, I hung around yeah. with people in the shadows. I did things in the shadows and didn't change who I was. It's just the lifestyle that I, I developed. And I, I focused more on surviving the day and making sure I had what I needed. And I became a little bit more, resourceful and relied on some survival tactics to, uh, to get my money, to get my substances and to, uh, to get through the day. And that, that lifestyle just kept going right into my late teens and my twenties, uh, all the way up until about 32 years old. Uh, was your family life good in the beginning when you were, let's say 13, 14, were you a close knit family? You know, I, I, I would say so. We all, you know, we lived together. We coexisted. I mean, I loved my mom. I loved my siblings. My stepfather and I had some, um, you know, some stuff between us. He wasn't, he was only 10 years older than me. So, you know, he was young, not, not really seasoned as a parent. And so, uh, you know, when he came in and he was learning how to be a man and stuff like that, we were really pushing against each other uh, right up until the point that, um, you know, they ended up kicking me out because of what I was doing. And I held a grudge against him for that for years um, as part of my sickness, you know, that he he got between me and my mom. And so there was a little bit there was a little uh, of a tumultuous relationship there. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, I was a, a a pretty healthy kid with a healthy family. I rode bikes. I skateboarded. I had all kinds of, uh, you know, fun and hopes and dreams. I explored in the woods. I climbed trees. I played with kids in the neighborhood. I was a good friend to some friends and. Um, you know, I delivered the newspaper and helped my neighbors and mowed lawns. And then, and all that changed. I see. We did you, um, play in any athletic sports teams? I did. I played uh, football. Um, and, uh, I enjoyed playing baseball recreationally, but not as a, a school sport or anything like that. I'm not sure where you grew up in uh, Beverly, very high and mm-hmm. in, high intensity baseball league. I, I know yeah. some guys from that area. So that you really had, you had Swamp Scott and you had Salem and a few yeah. other towns to compete with. So you had to be yeah. a stud baseball player to make that squad. I'm and sure. I was not. <laughs> yeah. Not everybody yeah. is. And that's, nope. there's more that there's more than a not than are, you know, mm-hmm. like, I actually I mean, spent more time in like the uh, AV groups. Uh, I, I preferred audio visual. I spent a lot of time in the, uh, 
you know, uh, in high school, I, I did the, uh, the high school news channel, um, directed and produced the, the show and uh, did all their editing and stuff. I really enjoyed that stuff. Um, so I wasn't really big into high school sports. Most of my football was pre-high school. Okay. So now you're in your late teens. And mm-hmm. uh, when did you realize that you had a problem? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think I realized it quite a few different times. The question was just, what did I want to do about it? And what could I do about it? You know, I think that uh, at 16, 17 years old, when I got kicked out of my house and I ended up at a, a group home and was struggling to find a place to live, um, I realized it was a problem um, or that I had problems. I don't know if I attributed them to drugs. I think I still blamed family, friends, community, the police department. I still, I still looked at myself as a victim of circumstance, not really being my fault or the drugs. Um, I think there was a few more times in my late teens where I got arrested and once again, blamed my family for me not having a place to live as to why I was doing the things that I got arrested for. Um, I wouldn't say until I was about 19 years old when I got my first real arrest um, for, um, you know, possession, distribution, a a series of felonies that I ended up at um, Concord State Prison and had an opportunity to reflect on my on my situation a little bit more. Um, I would say up until that point, I hadn't had a lot of clarity, you know, a lot of moments to sit and reflect on my life. But I would say right around 19, when I made it to prison was my first reflection back on, man, I might have a drug problem. Yeah. Now you're 19 and you're at a, the Concord state prison, which can be pretty tough. Uh, actually gentleman that I was with today was in Concord Mm -hmm. state prison and it changed his life. He made a total turnaround from after realizing that that it wasn't the guys he's in there with, that he was one of those guys. Right. You must've felt the same. Did you ever go into solitary? I did. That's actually where I started. Um, when I first went in, it was, uh, they had switched over from uh, Walpole to Concord for classification. So everybody went in and ended up doing 30 days in um, uh, J2 or one of the lock units um, before they made it into population. So I started there. Um, I never made it into solitary as a, a direct result of a fight or anything like that. I, I actually, I stayed under the radar when I was in Concord. Um, most of my fights happened in county jail. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a tough experience. I think that, you know, I definitely looked at my life a little bit differently and I, I was motivated to do different things. I got my GED in state prison, um, actually did quite well. Uh, so I, I had some desire to do something different with my life and then you know, after a couple of years, when I got out, uh, I went back to my mother's house on parole and I, I was, I had good intentions. I, I came back and tried to stay sober and tried to live a normal life, so to speak. Um, had a good relationship with my parole officer. I didn't violate. Um, it was once I was off parole and started to romance the idea of the lifestyle, not necessarily just the substances, but going back to, you know, the, the reputation I had built in the years prior and, you know, maybe I could sell drugs and not do them or hang around with people that did them and not do them. And eventually the lifestyle brought me back in. Um, and it was just a matter of time, you know, 22 years old, I was back to using and selling again. When you were in prison, did they not, did they give you a, now that you know what needs to be done for rehab and everything, did they prepare you for the outside world any, or was it kind of like, okay, you did your time. See you later. No, they, I mean, they tried, you know, I'll be honest with you. They, you know, I was only in for a couple of years. So when I, when I made it to Concord, I was only there for a few months. And then I went to the Concord farm, which is across the street and, uh, you know, worked on the tractors and did some of the drug and alcohol groups that they had there. It wasn't a lot focused around substance use. And then I went to Boston state pre-release in Dorchester and, you know, I think they focused more on reintegration there. I was able to get a job while I was there save money, um, you know, communicate with more of my family. And I think they tried. I'm, I'm not saying that there weren't services available, but this was also back in 1997, 1998. I don't think that the, the state or the prisons or anything like that was really focused on substance use as much as they are now, you know, to the point where we yeah, have <clears throat> recovery programs at Middleton, you know. Yeah, that's just the beginning of the 
the opioid epidemic really kicked into gear mm-hmm. around 97 and 98. Mm-hmm. And yep. that most of the prisons hadn't even seen somebody who was on opioid addiction. So no, <clears throat> I mean, I remember back then it was just, it was heroin for us. And, you know, the idea of getting those pills was, it was alien to us there, you know, you weren't getting Oxycontin uh, or anything like that. You were still just getting Percocet and Vicodin or just straight heroin. Um, yeah. yeah. So now you're in your early twenties. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's next? When do we um, when do we realize we need to go to AA? So um, you know, I would say it came it came at the cost of, you know, I was uh, in a relationship, had a child, and uh, that relationship started to fall apart. A business that I bought into started to fall apart, um, and it was after losing the business, after losing access to my child. Um, that things started to become a little bit more real in and out of detox repeatedly in and out of jail repeatedly through my twenties. Um, you know, to the point where I think toward my late twenties, um, my last, my last stay in Middleton was for a parole violation for compounded charges. I mean, I had, I had gone in for violating probation for the same charge I was on probation for. I was just a repeat offender, uh, textbook. And I ended up in there and, you know, I reference this in my book a little bit is that, you know, I got to the point where I was sitting in jail and I was on the phone with my mom and, you know, I said, listen, I, I think I've decided to stay. And she goes, what does that mean? And I said, well, I think I've decided to stay in jail. I mean, it's the only place I'm, I'm safe. I was like, it's the only place my family is safe from me. I said, I don't know how to do it out there. I don't know how to do what everybody else does. Every time I try, I fail. I screw it up. Um, every time I've tried to get sober, I can't do it. Uh, and the easiest thing for me to do at this point is just to stay in jail. (laughs) And, you know, uh, my mom was confused by that. And I had to explain what that means, which is that I had only, I was only in there, uh, for a year and to stay in jail when you don't have a life sentence is that you have to keep committing crimes in jail to get new charges to stay. And so I had almost resigned myself to just staying there and getting involved in the the prison politics and, you know, finding ways to just stay. And, um, you know, that was a pretty strange place to get to. Okay. So now you're in prison, you want to stay. And I get it because that's the, one of the safest places. I, I know there's a Catholic, um, organization that sends you over to Italy and you have to sign up for three years. And the couple of the guys that I know that went, I would never believe it that they went for three years. Mm. And then when I found out at the end of three years, they signed up for three more. They signed up because they were both heroin addicts and they were afraid that if they came back to the United States, they wouldn't stay clean. And they decided they wanted to live. And they found that being a monk in a monastery was safe and comforting. You know, was you know the life of being an addict is is pretty tumultuous. You get up every day, and now you got to go find, figure out a way you're going to get your fix for the day, and what are you going to do, mm-hmm. and where you're going to sleep tonight. And um, I know a lot of people that were involved like that. And then <clears throat> once you get on oxys and stuff like that, you get now you're in the threat of getting dope sick if you don't get what you want. And I assume you could get dope sick from heroin if you because it's the same formula. So if you know mm-hmm. heroin's not, if you if you can't get a fix on heroin after what twenty four hours, you start get the sweats and and it gets pretty torturous, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. And uh, sometimes even shorter than that, just a few hours, four to six hours, and then you start to get the psychosomatic symptoms where I have to go get this or I'm going to be sick, and uh, that's that's the drive, right? Is that I don't want to feel pain, which is the greatest motivator is pain. And so yep. since I don't want to feel pain, I will do just about whatever needs to be done to get that thing that will help me avoid that pain. Oh, so how, how did you decide one day that that uh, Middleton or Concord was not going to be your permanent address? So, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I have a, a legacy name. My father handed it to me. So my father's name is Mike Wilson. I gave it to my son. My son's name is Mike Wilson. And, uh, you know, I was sitting in jail thinking about my son, who I believe was eight at the time. And I had 
I had made somewhat of a mess of my name. Uh, my father handed me a perfectly good name and I made a mess out of it to the point where people in my community knew my name. My name had been in the newspaper. Uh, if you said my name, people thought bad things. Um, and I was just sitting in there thinking about my son and him, uh, you know, going to a friend's house from school and them hearing his name and asking if I was his father and them treating him differently because of the things I had done. And, you know, motivated me to give it one more shot. And, you know, that in combination with some conversations with my mother, uh, you know, I, I felt like there was there was still one more chance and that I would go out and see if I could do it. And if I could, great. If not, I knew where I was going to end up again. And that then I'd just give up. And so I, I moved some things around and was able to get uh, a conversation going with the judge who gave me another chance, gave me a suspended sentence and let me go off and prove myself, which was great. Um, that judge has been amazing and kept in touch with me over the years. And, and I've done the same to let him know what I've what I've done since then. But it was um, it was a great opportunity. And I'm not going to say that when I came out, I stayed sober because that's not true. I went through another couple of years of, um, you know, messing around with alcohol, trying to be a normal drinker instead of a drug user. Um, you know, I messed around with um, Suboxone. I ended up on a on Suboxone with a doctor who, you know, was well-intentioned and, you know, was, was helping me. And I'm not going to lie, the medication did help bridge the gap for me, but ultimately I had to take myself off that medication too. And so my, my sobriety date is, is uh, back in 2010, February, 2010. And, um, that's the day that I decided to come off of Suboxone and start working with a sponsor and start getting involved in the 12 steps and work on my own recovery. And that was, you know, that was a, that was a tough jump to go from that way of life to now I want to do this. And I've always been a business owner. I've always, uh, you know, done my own thing. And so when I did finally get sober, I leaned into this, this, field, um, you know, working with other people. And so, um, you know, prior to um, even getting sober, I was motivated to work with families and, um, you know, trying to help people. And so it's just a natural transition of trying to find some way to make a living out of helping other people. So is it safe to say you've been sober now for 11 or 12 years? 12 years, just this past February 23rd. Yep. So you got your 12 year pin. Yep. And and um, I will ask you, I know we keep this anonymous, but um, mm -hmm. did AA have a big factor in this? Was it helpful? Yeah, I mean, I would say the, the fellowship is where I met most of, you know, like my friends, other people that are in recovery, too. But I would say, you know, the the actual the 12 step process, um, I think, is probably the most important part of what AA brings to the table. And so I think it was a combination of the two. I think it was, um, you know, I joined other coalitions and groups. Like I became a real big part of my community. I joined the, um, the mayor's drug task force. I joined nonprofit boards in my community to try to find ways to be of service and give back and learn about what was happening in my town, get connected to people. And I think it was just a combination of all those things, you know, trying to find ways to be useful, trying to find ways to connect uh, with other human beings instead of living in the shadows was really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read several places where they, 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 they had like a, a mouse actually in a cage. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you read this story and they offered mm -hmm. the mouse plain water or water with heroin in it. Mm -hmm. And the mouse, mouse living by itself would go to the water with the heroin in it. Mm -hmm. And then, then they put the same mouse in a environment where there was lots of other mice and, little cages and little things to walk through and everything. The mouse never even bothered with the water with the heroin in it only went to the fresh water. Mm -hmm. Like he knew because it was the connection that he was making with all these roommates and all the other things. And human beings, mm -hmm. I believe are exactly the same. We, we, we like to, we're better if we're part of a community. Right. I think that's really important. <clears throat> No. Well, yeah, no, that, you, that you, connection. They say the opposite of addiction is connection, right? I mean, the, that's right. the idea of of having something worth staying sober for. I'll I'll just share this really briefly. Is that, um, you know, I was working with a a, a client recently, and and she was uh, homeless, and you know, we talked about her getting sober, and she's like, "Well, if I'm homeless, why would I be sober?" 
And I was, it took me a minute to think about that. And I was like, well, I mean, I, wouldn't you want to be sober so that you can build your life? And she's like, yeah, but I can't. Every time I try, I fail and I just end up homeless. And if I'm homeless, I don't feel connected to anybody. I have nothing else to do. So she was talking about that, you know, the rat park experiment of just, you know, there's nothing else to do. So why would I try to get sober? And I I felt her pain. I've been there before. So I felt that hopelessness and that desperation, but I think it really spoke to that experiment of just, if there's nothing else to do, and this is what makes me feel better. I'm going to do it. You That's know? right. You know, so when, you know, like, so now, um, you know, you go, you're involved with all these things. And when did you decide that you wanted to, um, what did you do? Buy into the, a company that was called Bay State Recovery? Or did you all start Bay State Recovery? I, so it actually started off as a nonprofit organization called Renewed Hope Project. And um, so I started the company, uh, I was the founder and the executive director, we created a board of directors. And in the year 2009, January 1st, uh, we opened an office, family donated um, the the money to rent an office for a year. Um, We had another family that put in the furniture. um, And we met with, uh, well, I met with uh, over 250 families that year for free, didn't charge anybody anything, just Anyone could come and talk. Um, you know, we had families come from Learn to Cope. Uh, I know another organization you've t- you've spoken to in the past. Um, you know, we had local treatment programs sending all their families over. And I basically sat down with all these families and just tried to highlight the needs. And so I developed services based on the needs of these families that were coming through the door. Um, and then in late 2009, early 2010, um, you know, we started you know, providing real services instead of just trying to consult with people. I used all that data to create the services that we have and create the model that we use, the family focus model. And then in, excuse me, 2014, um, I brought in a business partner, uh, my my friend, uh, John, who came in and uh, he's also in recovery and I'd worked with him and his family. And he came in as a 50-50 partner in the company. We rebranded and changed the name to Bay State Recovery Services. And then since then, we've done a majority of our business under the Bay State Recovery Services flag. So Renewed Hope Project is no longer around, but that was, you know, for five years, that was the community grassroots organization that we had um, that really launched everything that we do today. So how did you pay the bills? You said you <laughs> talked to 250 people and you didn't yeah. charge them any money. I know. So how do you, how do you, how'd you keep the lights on? So luckily, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to live with family at the time who was helping to support me. And so I had a, a rent-free situation. Um, I didn't have a lot of bills. I kind of lived off of donations at the time. So we did have families that were donating. Um, and so the nonprofit was providing me a very base salary so that I could live um, off of those donations. But, you know, anyone could come through. And obviously, since then, we've had to create services and fees and stuff like that um, associated to the services that we provide. But in the beginning, I mean, honestly, I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know that this is what I was meant to do. I didn't know what families were going to be asking for. So it was really hard for me to put a finger on exactly what I could do for them in the beginning. So it had to be done that way in order to figure out how best to serve the population instead of just coming in with my idea of what they need. I needed to know what they really needed. Uh, and the only way we could do that is just by meeting as many people as possible and getting as much data as we possibly could. Okay. So did you go to any particular place to be some sort of certified or, or anything? I mean, nope. what you have is experience and you're also, as they would say, I won't use the word, but one, one who's been an addict knows how the addict thinks. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you know, all the, uh, the bull stories. I'll just leave it like that, you know, because mm-hmm. you've said them all yourself, you know, and you know all right. the tricks. Yeah, I get that. I, my problem was addiction to gambling. Oh, and okay. It's a similar thing in a different way. There's no drugs yeah. involved, but the drug is you get high when you're winning mm-hmm. and you yep. get very down when you're losing. So it's the same concept. You know, it's it's sure. the addiction gene that's still in those endorphins in the back of your brain. And that's the whole right. scene, you know. Um, Chasing the so, rush. Yeah. That's correct, you know. Yeah. So I became a salesman when I got sober and I decided that the rush would be making a sale and at mm-hmm. least I could support my family because if I didn't sell, uh, that was okay. I didn't yeah. lose anything and I didn't damage anybody. Right. You know. So 
Well, I think uh, we all go through that when we get well is that we have to find another place to put that energy, right? Energy doesn't disappear. So you've got all this exactly all this drive and energy that you've been utilizing to 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 maintain your full-time job of addiction, uh, whether it's to alcohol or drugs, you know, you've got all the effort that goes into doing it, getting it, hiding it, lying about it, lying to yourself about it. And that energy doesn't just go away when you stop using. It needs to be refocused. It needs to be, you know, dispersed amongst a few healthy hobbies or actions or behaviors. And that's it's a great way to put it. I mean, I did that same thing with my career. I'm a little hyper-focused in areas. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I can't stop starting businesses and doing things, but at least it's healthy. <laughs> um, yeah, healthier, it is. That's, you know? that's exactly because we're going to have that, that. Some people call it type A personality that type mm-hmm. of aggressiveness, you know, and, and I, I happen to play on multiple baseball teams. So I call my, I say I have Bud's disease, baseball use disorder, because <laughs> you know, I, I might get hit by a pitch or hit by a batted ball somewhere along the way and get a bruise, but that's the limit, you know? Yeah. So, so, and I'm, and I'm sore and tired, so I have to go to sleep at night, you know, so it's good. Keeps mm-hmm. me. And, and again, the camaraderie of all the guys on the teams, that's, you know, I probably know 75 to 100 guys from last year. And so there's a yeah. lot of communication going on. And I happen to be the oldest yeah. that plays on any of the teams just about. So <laughs> that also, yeah. I kind of have the uncle approach to them, you know. Um, so I am curious now, you got a, you're family focused. So now a woman or somebody approaches you and mm-hmm. her, her son or daughter is is in trouble and her husband's kind of like um, thinks she should just quit or he should just quit and doesn't understand why they're doing this. And the wife's coming to you and how do you, you, you get the whole family involved? What is your approach to this kind of a scenario? This is what I we need to have the people out there listening, you know, that mm-hmm. I, I know there's somebody out there who's, who's some, some relative of theirs is out of control. They don't know what to do. Right. They come to you and how do you, how do you make it a, a family focused event instead of just an individual event? It's a great question. I, I think, you know, with all the, the, the variety of situations out there, I guess what generally happens is that a family member, anyone, husband, wife, son, father, daughter, whatever it might be, reaches out. They're the first one to, you know, get, get fed up with the way things are, you know, the, the, the family dynamic has devolved over years. And the way I look at this is that, you know, when somebody is struggling with addiction within a family, um, the family is not unaffected. And I think, you know, that, uh, you know, everybody changes in some way or another. And what ends up happening is it's like a slow boil, you know, over time, people adjust their behavior around the addiction. Uh, they stop bringing things up or they're constantly bringing things up, whatever it is, the dynamic gets very unhealthy. And next thing you know, a family member realizes that they're in a pot of boiling water and they don't realize how it got to that point. And so that's usually the first point of contact that we get is that person or that group of people that just say, hey, listen, we're in a pot of boiling water. We need some help. And so they call, they reach out, they make that first point of contact. And, you know, we provide a free consultation, sit down with anybody, um, you know, for about an hour to an hour and a half and really dissect what they're going through. I mean, tell me the story. What what got to this point? Um, What are some of the issues that you guys are experiencing, but also you know, how can we help your loved one? What have they been through before? Where have they been to treatment? What have they tried? What types of conversations have you had? Um, And when we talk about being family focused, it's not just about getting their loved one help. Um, You know, obviously getting them into treatment is ideal. Uh, Getting them the services that they need, that would be ideal. But understanding that the family needs to change whether their loved one's willing to get help or not is the family focused approach. And I think that's, it's a hard one. It's a hard one to talk about initially because people are like, well, what do I need to change? They're the ones struggling with addiction. You know, if they get better, then we'll get better. And I don't disagree to a certain extent, but what if they're not ready? What if they're not willing to get better? Are you going to continue to sacrifice your finances, your living situation, your mental, emotional health? Um, is there infighting within the family? Are there things that you can do differently? And, you know, we start there. And since every family system is different, um, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to focus on how to get them to reconnect all with a common goal. You know, you usually have angry family members, fed up family members. I'm done. I hear that all the time. I'm done. I don't want any part of it. I'm not going to go in and help. I'm just going to wait. 
And so you end up with, you know, hypersensitive family members, overreacting family members, disconnected family members, but they all want the same thing. They all want their loved one to get well, and they all want to know how they can play a role in it. Some people are playing the the hardened family member card, the tough love card, the, you know, I'm going to continue to talk it out card. And, you know, surprisingly, if we can get them all in the same room, they all want the same thing. They're all just going about it a different way. And, you know, whether or not we do an intervention or any other type of family service, the goal is to get everybody saying the same thing, asking for the same thing, and ultimately to see if we can sit down and have a conversation with that person about what's happening in their life and what they want. Because you'd be surprised. More often than not, the individual struggling with addiction wants the same thing we want. They're just feeling pretty hopeless about it because all their effort to get that up until that point has failed them. Like me, you know, I felt hopeless. Like I couldn't be, I couldn't be fixed. This couldn't get addressed. And so when my family would come to me and say, Mike, stop doing drugs and do normal stuff. I'd be like, I tried, I've tried repeatedly. It doesn't work. And then they'd be like, well, stop doing drugs or else. And I'd be like, well, I guess we're going to have to talk about or else because I can't stop. And so rather than threatening me and trying to punish me, we all wanted the same thing. I didn't know how to get it. Neither did my family. And so for my family to come to me and ask me to fix something that they didn't even understand was a problem. And so family focused means if you're the family and you love this person, the least you can do is understand what they're going through and understand your role in it and try to make adjustments on your side to see if you can help them. And more often than not, if we can get everybody saying the same thing, coming from the same place, their loved ones listen. And so that's that's our family focused approach is that we work with the whole family no matter what, whether their loved one wants to show up or not, we can affect change and we do it yeah, quite I mean, successfully. I always like to use the example when you're on the airplane, you know, if the oxygen goes crazy, the right. mask comes down. So put the mm-hmm. mask on yourself first before you put it on the your child sitting next to you because you've got to be, if you're in chaos, how can you possibly help this person? And of course. That's yeah. And I always say the families are always in chaos themselves. One person mm-hmm. in the family with an addiction issue, not only is the family, but even some of the outskirt relatives, you know, because they're mm-hmm. giving advice to the family and saying, no, do this, do that, and so forth. And I, But I do think there's a big difference between how you treat a person with the alcohol addiction and the person who has the, the opioid addiction. Because yeah. um, <clears throat> I think the... The alcoholic, when they reach bottom, they 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 usually survive. But where the uh, the opioid person overdoses, somebody's not around to inject Narcan, they're not going to be alive. And I think that's a. I was going to ask you, how do you how do you do you, do you approach the alcohol? I can see the family approach somewhat the same, but but you 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 make sure that that's clear that they they know that if they have that if it's a drug problem and it's a hard Oxycontin kind of thing, and they're doing like 160 milligrams a day, we're getting in pretty dangerous territory here. Mm-hmm. So how do, you know, do you approach it a little more differently? Yeah, I mean, uh, <clears throat> surprisingly, the statistics are that more people die from alcohol every year than substances. And even more so, more people die from cigarettes than alcohol and drugs combined. So, I mean, I, 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 I don't get it. I disagree with that. But yeah, the, the risk is there for opioids because it's there's a potential danger for immediate death in every dose, right? Like every use, there's a potential right. for, for, for immediate death. I, I look at alcohol as, you know, being a lot more destructive over time, uh, a lot more serious physical damage is done. Like, I, I'm, I've met... 60 year old heroin addicts that look like they are, you know, preserved, (laughs) uh, you know, physically speaking, they're in perfect health. Um, you know, and then you meet a 30 year old alcoholic who's got stage four liver uh, cirrhosis of the liver and they're dying, you know, so body impact. I come at alcohol with the same, with the same aggressive tactics, which is that this needs to be done now. Um, but of course, when it comes down to opioids, you know, uh, it's, you know, the opioids that are out there now, uh, none of them are heroin, none of them are Oxycontin, and most of them are not Xanax or Percocet, they're fentanyl. You know, everything's pressed yeah. and, you know, you can't even get a real Oxycontin anymore. I don't even think they make them. So, you know, what we're dealing with now is that we're dealing with people who are either using fentanyl uh, because they don't know any better 
or they may just be buying it because it's cheaper and more powerful. And, you know, it, as a, as a professional, as an interventionist leaning in, it's hard for me not, not to get caught up in the family's desperation and fear of we have to do this right now. But I also have to make sure that I prepare the family appropriately um, because I can't just go in a room and say what I say and do what I do because their loved one doesn't care about me. I'm nobody to them. I mean, I can connect with them, but as far as leverage or influence, I have none unless the family empowers me. So I do need a little bit of time to work with the family first in order to be effective. And there's a balance in there, you know, approaching it as quickly as possible, but not rushing in unprepared. And, you know, I would suggest the same for families. I know it's hard not to react and go in yelling and screaming out of fear and desperation. I know if it was my family, I'd want to do the same, but I can't stress the importance of taking uh, one step back and preparing yourselves for all the possible outcomes before you have that conversation and having somebody in the room that's not emotionally compromised. I'll speak from experience, yeah. even though I'm a professional, I've been doing this for a long time. I have walked into my own family's situations and I'm usually the one overreacting because there's nobody in charge. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's, it can be dangerous. Those conversations. They, they can be. And um, now the other problem is most people, if they have insurance, they're covered for like two weeks. And, and I, I, and I noticed that one of the biggest issues is uh, how often do you see a guy like you? Do they see you once a week or every other day or once a month or how does, you know, cause it's, cause this is an ongoing problem. And I, mm. I, I notice it myself, you get very, pretty intense, you know, uh, what's mm -hmm. next kind of thing, you know? Well, you know, as an interventionist, so let's just speak about that service right now. So as an interventionist, if a family calls me and says, Hey, listen, my loved one is going through some stuff. My first response is going to be, well, let's get a group of family, you know, some concerned family members together and let's have that consultation. We'll have that meeting and we'll talk it through. And then my advice will be, you know, we should try to do this or we should try to do that, discussing some sort of strategy to help them and their loved one. Um, and then the preparation process is usually done every other day uh, for three days. So, so be, you know, uh, was it one, two, three, four, five, six, maybe seven days, about a week of preparation to get the family ready. And then we're ready to go sit with their loved ones. So it happens pretty quickly. Um, and then okay. after we but sit with their loved ones. it's consistent. It's daily you're talking. Yeah. Well, there's three okay. preparation meetings. So there's three meetings with the family to get them ready to go sit down with their loved one. And then when we sit down with their loved one, we're asking their loved one to go to treatment more often than not. And so once we get their loved one into treatment, then we communicate with the family weekly uh, to make sure they're getting the external support that they need while their loved one is in treatment. And if they don't go to treatment, then we keep working with the family and trying to help their loved one. We don't give up when they say no. We know that no doesn't mean no. No just means I'm not ready right now. And so we keep coming yeah. and we keep trying until they get the help that they need. So here's my, my big question is section 35, mm -hmm. having the child sectioned. Um, mm -hmm. How often is that, is that the alternative or that's the best way to go versus all the other options that you have? Well, so section 35 is a tool <clears throat> and that tool is effective 100% of the time for what it's designed for. Meaning that if you are able to get somebody committed through a section 35 here in Massachusetts, 100% of the time, they will be safe for that period of time that they're in the program. And I mean, obviously something could happen while they're in there, but for the most part, they are safe. It works at getting people into treatment for a short period of time and keeping them alive long enough to figure out what else to do with them. Um, my professional experience working with Section 35 is that for most of my clients, it's kind of like a coin toss as to whether or not that's gonna lead them to further treatment or if they're going to leave with the same mindset they came in. Um, you know, I, I've had clients, I've got one right now that's going to treatment tomorrow after 45 days of being in a section 35. And he changed his mind while he was in there and decided to continue on with his treatment. I've also had people that have gone in for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, and they leave just as angry as the day they went in. And I think it has a lot to do with the person and the circumstances, but as a tool, um, section 35 is a great tool to put a pause, hit the pause button on what somebody's going through, give the yeah. family an opportunity to regroup, um, give their loved one an opportunity to get sober and clear headed and maybe have another conversation with them about what's next. Yeah. Could you explain to the, to the listeners 
um, what you have to do to get somebody sectioned. How does that work? So section 35 is a hearing, all right? There's a section 35 hearing. In order to arrive at that section 35 hearing, you're going to have to petition your local court. Um, That means that you would go to whatever your local city uh, district court is, um, and you would speak to the court clinician or the court psychiatrist um, and ask them if you could discuss a section 35. And the idea is that you have to explain to this, this court clinician, this professional, um, firsthand information and concern about your loved one's drug or alcohol use, as well as whether or not you feel as though they're a danger to themselves or others. And those are the determining factors as to whether or not you're going to get a Section 35 hearing. Um, if that court clinician or court psychiatrist determines that a Section 35 hearing is worthy, they'll put it on the on the docket, and you will get a court um, you will get an opportunity to speak to the judge. Uh, they will issue a warrant to go pick up your loved one. That warrant usually lasts for three to five days, depending on which court and which county you're in. Um, And they will go pick up your loved one. They need to know where they're located. So if they're staying at someone's house, they'll go pick them up there. Um, If you don't know where they are, that warrant will stay open until they find them. Um, And if the warrant expires, you'll have to go back for another petition. If they are picked up, they'll be brought back to that district court and seen in front of that judge. And they will get an attorney to help defend them meaning that your, your struggling loved one will get an attorney and they will have an opportunity to defend themselves. Um, and then you as the family will get an opportunity to speak your mind as well about why you have such fear and concern. And an actual hearing will be held. Um, considering that somebody is having their civil liberties questioned and their freedoms, um, they have a right to an attorney uh, and a judge will determine based on all the evidence that's presented whether or not that person meets the criteria to be held against their will in a locked facility based on their danger or whether or not they're an imminent danger to themselves or others. It's a tough process. I was a um, a witness in a Section 35 hearing three or four weeks ago. I think it was about a month ago. And um, uh, it was a family that I had done an intervention for. Their loved one was here in Massachusetts, and I was working with their loved one who was struggling. and we, the parents filed for the hearing. She was picked up and brought in. And I got to participate in it. I got to talk with the court clinician. I felt as though we had a very strong case. The parents spoke very eloquently about their concerns and their fears. And um, the judge denied it. And so you don't even know uh, if you're going to get it. It is, it is a bit of a gamble, but it's still worth trying. You know, I think the even the judge said, you know, don't give up hope. I just don't have enough evidence to do what you're asking me to do. If there's more information or another incident, come back and do it again. Uh, and so as a tool, I think it's it's a good tool, but it's also not a guarantee. It is locked up, but just so parents know, it's not prison. It is not it just, prison. No, it's a locked treatment facility this, here in Massachusetts. Yeah. There's about three of them for men um, and a couple for women. And, you know, they are not luxury treatment programs, but they are also not the bottom of the barrel. There's people that work there that care. Um, Like I said, I've been in communication with my most recent client who's going to treatment tomorrow, and his case manager has gone above and beyond to help him doing research for treatment, communicating with me and the family. And so there are people in there that care. Yeah. So I was going to say that one of the problems with uh, some of the regular treatment centers, if the person's over 21, they just walk out. Correct. They say, oh, yeah, this spin guy. Yeah, they just walk out and see you later. And Mm -hmm. I think there's more, more, uh, the word I want to say, the family can feel a little more content if they're in Section 35 and they're put somewhere where they just can't walk away. And it gives them a time to reflect. Um, I was one of the speakers. I was one of the speakers at Bridgewater for the men who got sectioned. And so I, I did it every week for like three years. So I, I could see wow. all the, I saw the different looks on their faces. Some of them were ready and some of them were not, you know, and uh, we had a few exactly. lockdowns while I was in there because they, some of them were pretty, uh, pretty rough with each other. So, but, uh, <clears throat> but I thought I could see the, the hope in some of their eyes. And I actually used, I would go there and I would teach them how to do meditation and tell them how to, it was time to mm-hmm. reflect and to listen to their breathing and, doing Buddhist meditation walk wow. and so they could reflect while they're here. I said, you're going to be here for 30 days, 60 days. You can't go anywhere. 
you might as well, let's give this a try. What do you got to lose? You know, nothing else. It'll keep you busy while you are here, you know? So I look, I look at it like cannon fodder, throw as much as throw as much stuff as you can at them and see what sticks. Right. I mean, yeah. Take drugs and alcohol out of the equation. You end up with a bunch of human sponges just looking for ways to feel better about themselves and feel better on the inside and give them as much exposure as you possibly can to all the different options. Yeah, and, and a big problem that we're all dealing with when we deal with people with addiction is the stigma. And right. one one thing that I would have, I always asked is how many people in the room are high school graduates? And it was about 95%. Mm-hmm. And I would say, how many are college graduates or done at least two years of college? It's almost 50%. Mm-hmm. So these aren't, these aren't people that said in the yearbook, I want to be a drug addict, you know? <laughs> They either got a prescription or they got went to a party and got something in their body that they said, wow, this is makes me feel a little different that I kind of like. And they start going after it or like my own son got addicted from a prescription. Mm-hmm. You know, um, before we go any further, how do they get a hold of you? I'd say I'm a parent now and give us a, the re, how did they get where they go to Bay State Recovery? Do you have a website? And so we do. Have, so. Yep. Bay State Recovery Services. Um, and the website is baystaterecovery.com. Uh, very simple. Um, all of our contact information is on there. You can reach me anytime. I mean, I actually give out my direct line too. Um, if you're okay with me doing that here. Go right ahead. I'd um, like you to. You know, yeah. Families can reach out to me directly at 978-434-1356. And I give that number out to everybody. I answer my phone. Um, and I think the best thing to do for most of the families that do reach out is just to hop on the phone for 10 or 15 minutes and just share. Um, and a lot of times okay. I'm able to either point them in the right direction or determine that it might need a little bit more uh, and give them some access to some more support. So um, I try to give all that out. And then of course our treatment center, which is our day treatment program is also Bay State Recovery Center. And that's baystaterecoverycenter.com. And all is that in Beverly? It is. Yep. Beverly, yep. Massachusetts. Okay. So I know a lot of people just heard you give out that phone number, but they didn't have a pen and a piece of paper. That's so right. So now that they've gone and got the pen and the piece of paper, <laughs> let's do the phone number one more time. All right. So uh, if they do want to reach me, they can reach me at 978 434 1356. That's 1356. Okay. And <clears throat> for anybody who's listening to our show, which will be on um, Thursday, the 28th. If you're hearing this on Thursday, the 28th, it'll be repeated again on Monday. And Monday is the 2nd of, of May. So mm-hmm. if you have a friend or relative that you think should listen to Mike Wilson, uh, tell them that the show will be on again at six o'clock on. And if they're outside of the Boston market, they can go to wmexboston.com and just hit listen now and you can hear Mike say what he said tonight it'll repeat so because yeah. i think i think there's so many people that have addiction problems it's i i, I would i gotta think it's overwhelming there's so many mm-hmm. you know i don't know how many how many people work for you but it's got to be a, uh, uh we have quite a uh, few employees i mean i i think the reality is is that everybody knows somebody you know absolutely and that's that's where we start to get rid of the stigmas that we realize that you know, in the same way that I think everybody knows somebody that's allergic to something, right? And substances is a thing that you could be allergic to. As I said earlier on in our conversation, when I did them, they affected me differently. That's an allergy. Yeah. You know, I'm, a, I'm allergic to drugs and alcohol. When I do them, I don't have the same reaction that other people have. I become obsessive, compulsive, and I can't stop myself. That's an allergy. And it's an illness. And, you know, as a, a stigma, I think we look at it as... Um, you know, something that is wrong with people and that they're they're broken or they're bad people because they choose to do this or they're doing it to themselves or they're doing it to their families. And, you know, we don't see them as people that are sick, confused and afraid because that's what's happening. When you have this allergy, when you're going through it and you're feeling sick, confused and afraid and people are telling you that you should be able to fix it, even though you can't, you start to feel hopeless and shameful and guilty for not being able to do it. And you think other people can, and you can't, and there's something wrong with you. And that just perpetuates the illness. So there's so many people out there. Everybody knows somebody. And the one thing that you can do is just lean in and see them as sick, confused, and afraid. And if you see them that way, then you don't see them as bad people. 
Right. And that's what, that's the biggest thing. And like my, my son came into the hospital, he was a patient. They gave him a prescription for Oxycontin. And then he comes back to the hospital and now he's a drug addict and they treat him like totally different, mm-hmm. you know, even though they gave him the prescription for the drug to begin with, right. you know, and that, that happens to a tremendous amount. I was a, a bereavement facilitator at Hope mm-hmm. Floats in Kingston. And there was 18 parents in and out that I was dealing with. And, and uh, 35% of them got addicted because their, their dentist gave their child uh, Percocets when they had their wisdom teeth out. And I learned that they learned that five uh, percent of the patients who are teenagers who get Percocet to get their wisdom teeth out, five percent are still on it a year later because mm-hmm. they're attracted to it. And as you say, that was their allergy to Percocet. They 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 got that kind of buzz from it that other people say, "Oh, this is crazy." But there are certain personalities that say, "Oh, this is what I always needed," you know. So that's mm-hmm. that's the thing. Um, before we run out of time, I want to uh, talk about your book. It's time we get people to read some of your book. <laughs> yes. So, um, well, I, I appreciate that, and I will shamelessly plug that book. It's uh, it's a, a thing I spent a lot of time on. So, uh, all the years of working with people, um, I developed a, a certain way of talking about addiction, recovery, um, a lot of analogies and storytelling. And so, back in 2017, I took the opportunity to put a lot of that onto paper. Uh, a lot of the stories that I was using that was helping, uh, you know, families come to terms with what was happening and understand it and find healthier ways to love their loved ones and support them. I decided to put all that down into book format. And then in 2018, um, I pub- published the book Loving Lions, which um, just is available everywhere. You can get on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all those places might even be in your local public library. A lot of the libraries put them in there. Um, and, you know, since then, I've had um, I've had the opportunity to share that book with treatment programs that give it out to families when their loved ones get there. Um, I've gotten a lot of feedback about it as being a useful resource, uh, helping people understand addiction in ways that maybe they hadn't in the past, understanding their role in recovery and so on and so forth. And in that book, I share a little bit about what I shared tonight, um, you know, about my personal experience leading up to that. Um, some of the things that I did and some of the ways that I approached my own recovery and, and, and what I did to really make that a, a lasting part of my life, a new way of life, uh, along with some information that's really specifically for families that are struggling to understand addiction or recovery or how to approach a loved one. Um, I outline a lot about what intervention is in there, um, as well as some of the pitfalls people have in trying to love and support someone struggling with addiction, things to do, things not to do. So there's a lot of useful information in there. And um, as I said, I, I put a lot into it and uh, I'm getting a little older. So it was good for me to get that on paper and free up some some storage yeah. up in the computer here um, and uh, and just be able to reference that information. But, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate I say uh, that the opportunity I, to plug that. I will say I went on Amazon this afternoon and they gave you a five stars. Hey, it was thank very you impressive. very much. And Very much. All, all, all different ways you can get the book. You can get an ebook. You can get an, a paperback or a hardcover. There were all different yeah. price points from eleven dollars to twenty six ninety five. So then mm-hmm. you'll you'll I'm autograph the audio book now. I'm working okay. on the audio book. It's coming soon. <laughs> oh, okay. So yeah. now you say loving lions. So is the lions the uh, the person with the addiction? There, there's a little story in there. I believe it's chapter seven um, called Loving Lions where. Um, you know, the analogy that I use is a story about this little family uh, that goes off to adopt a cat and uh, they go to the shelter and, you know, amongst all the cats and kittens, there's a little lion cub and uh, they decide that they want to adopt the lion cub and bring it home. And so the family believes that even though it's a lion, they can raise it like a cat, like a house cat. And so they do. They raise it like a house cat. They love it like a house cat. It thinks it's a house cat, but it's still a lion. And it's still dangerous and it still has some dangerous behaviors, some some primal instinctual things that happen. And, you know, this family system goes through a process of deterioration where the lion is acting like a lion. They're mad that it won't act like a house cat. And the story is really to help people understand that the sooner that you can appreciate the fact that you love a lion, the sooner you can love it appropriately. And in this family system, it started to break down because they thought the lion was capable of something that it wasn't capable of. And they were upset about it. 
And the lion felt bad because it couldn't behave the way the, the family wanted it to behave. And so they started to disconnect and break apart. And as I said, the sooner a family can recognize that they're loving somebody that's going through this issue, the sooner they can love them appropriately. And by loving them appropriately, it means recognizing the dangers of getting too close. It means recognizing um, that you might need to respond differently to certain things or um, communicate in a different way. And so the loving lions analogy really goes throughout the whole book of, you know, being able to accept that you love someone struggling with addiction and learn about it and accept it and accept that if you bring them too close to your situation, you run the risk of having what they're going through affect your life. And there are other healthier ways to keep them close and stay connected. And so that analogy continues throughout the book um, and really helps bring people to a better understanding of what it means to love someone struggling with addiction. And I always tell different groups that as bad as you think it is right now, loving your lion, if that lion dies of an overdose or dies mm -hmm. of alcohol poisoning, mm -hmm. um, yeah, the other side is 10 times worse. Of course it Can't is. Even, nobody can even believe that, but they don't understand that, that that empty hole in your heart and is just gone. You know, you, you, you can't get, you'll never get that phone call that you hated to get before. But mm -hmm. now you're not going to get it at all. And it's like a, it's just totally different. And now you're into a different phase. But we won't go there. We want to start, you know, the, the name of our show is Courage to Hope. And, and um, Mike, I want to say that you've taken us from a person who was addicted to a person who wanted to live in prison because he knew that was the only safe place to be. And now you... Um, You've gone totally 180, and now you're running a recovery center, and it appears to me that your goal in life is to save others from what you were going through, and you want to help mm -hmm. in any way possible. And you remembered what your mother went through with you, you know, and maybe even your stepfather, as tough as mm -hmm. it was. But, you know, and, and you don't want other families to have to be blown apart because of an, the addiction gene. And I call it addiction. Right. It's a disease and people need to understand. Mm -hmm. And I, <clears throat> again, my, my basic thing was a lot on opioids and they used to say, Oh, they're abusing the drug. And I always say, no, the drug abuses the patient. I said, as soon as you accept that it's not their fault, the drug abuses the patient. And I think mm -hmm. that's, you know, really critical. Now, before I let you go, mm -hmm. uh, what question did I not ask you? that you wanted to tell everybody about. Hmm. That's my Dan Rather trick. I like it. I like it. Um, let's see. I guess the question I get asked a lot is, is it still as hard to avoid drugs and alcohol after 12 years? You know, like I think a lot of people struggle with the concept of recovery being a lifelong battle. And, you know, that, that, once you start the journey of recovery, you're fighting the urge to drink or do drugs every day. And, you know, my response is, no, it's not that hard. Um, I think once you practice a new way of life and once you are able to remove the need to use drugs and alcohol to fill that void inside of you um, and you can find something else to put in there, it's not as hard. I mean, obviously I have to be vigilant, but there is hope and there is an opportunity on the other side of it. And, you know, so I just... I hate it when people look at it as this lifelong debilitation, like a hobble, like you're going to be hobbling or walking on crutches for the rest of your life. And the reality is you can recover. There is hope. And um, I believe that people all deserve a chance to get well. And I've never met a hopeless person. It might feel hopeless. The situation might seem hopeless, but I've yet to meet a hopeless person. Yeah. I mean, I can think of a lot of different analogies, but me personally, with a, with a with a gambling addiction, you know, I wouldn't want to hang out in a casino in Las Vegas, you know, mm -hmm. not a good idea, you know, mm -hmm. so just do other things and stay away from it, you know, same thing if you mm -hmm. go to, you know, you wouldn't hang out in a bar room if you had an alcohol problem or become a bartender, it's kind of a, not a good plan. Right. I, with no hair, I have no reason to be at a barbershop. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, yes, you do. You might want your nice beard trimmed, you know. Get the beard You have a good beard. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So before we go, again, give us the name of the book. 
Loving Lions, a guide for families struggling with addiction. By Mike Wilson. Easy to remember. Okay. And the second is, it's Bay State Recovery Services. And your cell phone number, if somebody wants a consultation. 978-434-1356. Okay. So you've been listening to Mike Wilson and Tony LaGreca. And this is The Courage to Hope. Thank you very much. It's great talking to you, Mike. Thank you for having me. Thank you.